Uh, we're in a new series. Uh, we're going to be going through the Psalms this uh, summer. Not all of them. That would be many summers. Uh, but we're going to go through a handful of them. And so the hope in this series is to see what the Psalms were designed to be for us. I think we can kind of forget what the purpose of the Psalms were, where the context is with the Psalms. We know when they're little, if you like open the middle of the Bible, which isn't actually true, but most of the time you're going to hit the Psalms. Uh, and so the Psalms aren't otherworldly. They are rugged and they're raw. And they're rugged and they're raw for a specific reason. You know, through the summer, we're going to be considering the Psalms. We're going to consider when they were written. So let's just play this out for us. And so we're going to get into First and Second Samuel kind of as an overview in just a minute. But First and Second Samuel was designed to just be one narrative uh, called Samuel. And we broke it up into two sections, not sojourn, but history did. So we got First Samuel, we got Second Samuel divided into two based off of a chunk of uh, David's life and a shift towards kingship. Uh, and so regardless, in, in the narrative of First and Second Samuel, you get this in Chronicles too, you find that there are moments of David's life, kind of a, a narrative form on the surface, events that happened. So we see an event that David's anointed as king. We see an event that he killed a big dude. We have an event that he's not running for his life. We have an event that these different things happen. What's beautiful about the scripture, and, and in this in particular, is that we don't just have the event on the surface. We actually also have the journal entries of David in those key moments of his life. And they're called the Psalms. And so we have in the Psalms specific moments where David is pinning and what is going on in his soul and how he's turning his posture back towards God in those moments. In the good times when things are flourishing and in the difficult times when he's failed or in moments of unmet expectation. We see in all of it this rugged, raw reality where he's turning his heart towards praise, which is what Psalms mean, in the midst of the real life, the real aspects of Overall life. And so we're going to tie together in this series uh, aspects and moments of First and Second Samuel with the journal entries, with the Psalms that he wrote, and we're going to tie those together. And so we're going to do that this summer. We're going to tie in the narrative and the heart in the midst of that over these upcoming weeks. And so this morning, I want to talk about the posture of our heart. When I say posture, I mean how we approach something. My, my posture, you know, and you feel this too, we're human, and so we, we posture ourselves towards people in different ways. There are certain people in your life where you posture yourself with a defensive front. For better or worse, we could spend some time talking about why that is, but you, you might feel that. And for others, you might feel safe with them, and so you posture yourself uh, with a posture of vulnerability. We posture ourselves with certain people and how we approach them. Um, and so our posture changes depending upon who those people may be. And so we learn from the life of David amidst all of his warts and flaws, which we won't minimize along the way, that he postured his heart toward God with humility and trust because he trusted the character of God. And so throughout, we're going to see this theme. He is messed up. He murders people. He has an affair. He, his children are a train wreck at times. Like that's his life. But in the midst of it, we see a posture where he's not the hero, but he postures himself toward the hero and trusting in the character of the hero who would be God. And so we see that he does that over and over and over again. He postures himself in that way. So before we get there this morning, I want to tee up the context of Samuel, and then I want to spend some time in Psalm 1, because the Psalms begin with Psalm 
one. Amen? Good. So Samuel, again, is cut in half into two. First Samuel, which means the first half of Samuel. And then second Samuel. So it's roughly around 1,000 B.C., roughly. Uh, and we meet three main characters throughout Samuel. We meet Samuel, who was a prophet. We meet Saul, who was the first king. And we'll talk about both of them in a minute. And we meet David. And so we meet, uh, there, there's, a, there's a, a poem near the very beginning of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and in it there's a lady named Hannah, and she kind of prays this prayer, which becomes kind of the, the thesis of the entire two books. And in this she says that God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. And we see throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that God, he opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. So again, we meet Samuel first. So Samuel becomes the mouthpiece. He's, he's a prophet. He becomes the mouthpiece of God through much of the first half of Samuel, in Sam, uh, first Samuel. He seeks to recalibrate the heart of Israel. Israel, through the judges, if you read through judges, you find that Israel's heart becomes wayward and begins to trust in other gods. And so Samuel's pulling them back as the prophet, as the mouthpiece of God. He's pulling Israel back to God. And so we meet Samuel, who was a prophet. We secondly meet Saul. So Saul, he looked like a king. If you've read 1 Samuel, be aware a little bit about this character. So he was tall, he was handsome, he looked the part of king. And so Israel thought that he should be king because on the surface, he looked like what a king should look like. He looked like what the kings of other nations looked like. And so they wanted a king just like other nations. And so they saw a prototype of what they thought should be king. And they said, we should name him king. And we have no clue what we're talking about, right? Like as humans, we only see a very small depiction of what a human is. We can see the exterior, which we have very little control over. We don't see what's happening in the heart, but God, he does. And so God gives them what he wants. He says, you want that? Have it. It's a form of judgment. Whenever God gives us what we want, it's a form of judgment. He gives them a form of judgment in Saul. And we see that Saul, again, was, was a train wreck we see that he was a train wreck as he uh, became king. His heart posture wasn't toward God. We find as we read through his narrative that his heart posture was towards pleasing people. At all costs, he sought to please people. That was the final objective for him, and it caused Israel to be negatively affected because of it. Just because he was tall, just because he was good looking, just because he was the ideal candidate didn't mean that he was also a coward and a train wreck. So God rejected him, this guy Saul, and he raised up a man after his own heart. And it's in this story that we hear with clarity something we need to hear over and over and over and over again. In America, we need to hear this over and over and over and over again that God doesn't see as man sees. We have a temptation to judge people by what's on the surface, and God does not see people the way we see people. We find in Revelation, or if you remember this, his eyes, Jesus is like a flame of fire. He sees right through the fluff and he knows us to who we really are. See, Saul may have externally looked the part, but internally he was deeply jealous. He was deeply insecure. He was a, and a jealous and insecure leader is actually a terrible leader. And so we meet Samuel. We meet 
Saul, and we'll learn more about them in the upcoming weeks. And then finally, we meet David. Again, the farthest thing from a flawless man. But David's strength, um, his, his strength was that he, it wasn't that he did a bunch of good things. His strength was that he leaned upon a rock. And that was the thing that held him up in all of the seasons of his life. He frequently made mistakes and he frequently reset and turned back to the loving kindness of God. I want to look real, real quick in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As I was trying to intro a bunch of chapters, I know that I'm doing a flyover here, but this is just a higher level. In, in 1 Samuel 16, um, Samuel asks Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Samuel asks Jesse, bring all your sons before me. And I don't want to bypass where Drew's going next week, but so I'll just give you just enough to want you, keep you wanting. And so, so uh, Jesse brings all of his sons but David. David is left out. We don't know if it was because he uh, had alienated David. We don't know if he was a broken relationship. We don't know if it was just because he was the youngest. Uh, but he was a shepherd, and he was the one son out of all the sons that was not included when Samuel said, bring all your sons to me. And so Samuel, he sees the first son, which actually looked very similar to Saul, and he's like, nah, that's not the one. And he begins to just go down the list. Samuel, the prophet, goes down the list of Jesse's sons. He's like, nope, 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 nope. And finally, he's like, Jesse, are there any more sons? Because God said that you had a son who's going to be king. And in the midst of all of that, we see this in verse 7, where, where it says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so we see that, that Samuel, through uh, as, the, as the conduit from God, he uh, anoints David as king. So 1 Samuel 16, which was what we just read, uh, David, you know, he'd spent years prior as a shepherd. He gets anointed as king in chapter 16. and verse 17, he throws a few rocks, kills this giant of a man who was like the king in Philistine. He was the, he was the hero in Philistine. He gets knocked down. And you would think right after that, like ideal time for this dude to be placed as king. But that's not the way it worked. We see for like the next roughly 15 years that David is having to submit under Saul's leadership who progressively becomes more jealous, more aggressive, even hateful towards David to the point of wanting to kill him. And David submits to and maintains a posture before God of trusting in God amidst all of that for the following 15-ish years. And nothing went his way during that time. We feel that. Some of you even in this season of your life, you feel that where nothing's going your way. You feel frustrated that the things you thought would be happening in your life by now aren't. The things you thought God was even leading you towards aren't the things that are actually happening in your life. And we can feel like David, really frustrated with unmet expectations. And yet David continually postured his heart before God, trusting in God along the way, even though he felt really frustrated. And so in the remainder of our time, I want to introduce the Psalms to us to teach us a thing or two about how we can posture our heart similar to David in this way. Psalm 1 introduces this posture in a really clear way. So Psalm 1, let's read it together as we consider this idea of posturing our heart before God with humility and trust. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his, on his law he meditates day and night. He gives this picture. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we get this introduction to the Psalms, and it's this picture, picture of posturing our heart before God. This is how to maintain a humble posture before God. So there is a way, regardless of circumstances, regardless of your season of life, to humbly trust in God. And Psalm 1 is giving us that picture. So we, we see it says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the human. The, the Hebrew word from here, from here can also be translated as happy. Blessed or happy is the man, the human. It's interesting that the first psalm here is similar to the first teaching of Jesus. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who um, are merciful. I didn't say that one already. We see uh, the introduction to the life of Jesus, the first teaching. He talks about what it looks like to be a blessed, happy human. And in the same way, we see that picture here in the Psalms. Both provide a vision for a blessed or a happy life. The biblical definition of happiness is not how we define it, though. Our definition, as 21st century Americans, define happiness different than God would. Happiness defined by us is an emotional state. If you remember back, I don't remember when it was, five, ten years ago, um, Pharaoh Williams summarized this for us in his song, Happy. He says, clap along if you feel like a, a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel. You guys can sing it. I'm not going to. I, I did that last year. I won't do that for like another ten. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. He goes on, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. And so it's an emotional state for us, a feeling. Clap along if you feel, if it feels, if you're, that's how we define happiness here and now. Humans can seek the pursuit of happiness and not be religious. You don't need to be religious to seek happiness. We all by nature do it. You know, our generation especially is seeking for this. Americans now spend $9.6 billion on self-help products. Like we, we put our money where our mouth is, we value what we invest into, and so we invest into things seeking to try to help ourselves to find this emotional state of happiness. And when I say happiness, I'm not referring to that. It's not just in modernity that we find a pursuit of happiness. The baseline of who we are as Americans is that we value happiness, um, you know, as a country, the baseline for us is life, liberty, and the pursuit of, yeah, it's, the, it's in the ethos. It's baked into who we are as, 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 as Americans. You know, I, I have a unique relationship with the Declaration of Independence. My mom and I, who's here, um, there's, they have like a glass over the Declaration of Independence, and you can kind of go on, you can look at it, you can see it's, it's beautiful, it's profound. And I had this like, 
it was hot out. I had this water bottle that's just sweating, you know, like when a water bottle sweats after it's, the, it's cold and, you know, the science and stuff. And so um, I put the water bottle on the glass of the Declaration of Independence. Unaware, I was, I, was a, I was a small child at this point, obviously much wiser now. Um, and so put it on there, and immediately security came to me and asked me to remove it. And so again, I have a unique relationship to the Declaration of Independence. But it's in the ethos of who we are. Thomas Jefferson believed that happiness was as important as life and liberty. He put those things together. So as Americans, we stand for a pursuit of happiness, and we don't want it to be uh, obstructed. So whatever definition he meant, I do think he meant a different definition the way we mean it today. We run into dead ends if that becomes our pursuit, the pursuit of happiness. I do believe that um, the trajectory of how God seeks for us to find happiness is far different than the trajectory of this emotional state of happiness that we're told to pursue today. Again, blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Happy is the one. Isn't a man or woman who attains an emotional state or circumstantial status? It's much, much, much more than that. I would defend the biblical happiness, definition of happiness as to be much closer to joy and alignment with peace and much less to do with joy being defined as happiness. I would say that happiness has hijacked our view of joy. But if you ask Paul what joy was closer to, he would say the fruit of the Spirit was love, joy, peace. And I think that joy and peace are much more similar than joy and how our modernity defines happiness. Happy is the one. At peace is the one who submits to what's about to be said. Again, the answer isn't circumstantial. The answer isn't an emotional state. To the degree that circumstances for us, um, circumstances for us, uh, to the degree that our circumstances define our view of happiness is to the degree that we become enslaved to those things. So again, blessed is the man. We see blessed is another form of happiness. And I'm not going to do that line by line for the rest of this. So we're going to be here forever. But blessed is the man. Happy is the man. I love that it says man or human. This means it's not blessed is the king or blessed is the scholar. The blessed is the one who's figured everything out. It's blessed is the common person. This invitation is for all of us. There is comfort, friends, that you can find this in your life. Whatever season of life you're in, you can find this. Because it's not about what you have, but about the posture of your heart. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he says, Blessed is the man who doesn't get counsel doesn't sit, doesn't stand with these groups of people. We don't always know who these people are because, again, these people also have a posture. Hopefully we aren't these people. But the clearest test if we are these people is this. If we have neglected the chief thing to be remembered, that there is a God, we are his creation, and we are created to live for him. Those three things are in opposition to these people. These people would say that you need to define yourself by yourself, that you are autonomous, that you are the one who defines who you are. You feel what you feel, follow your heart. These are the results of the wisdom of or folly of these people. 
It says, blessed is the man who doesn't seek to build their life without God. See, the poison of secularism is this. A gospel without Jesus is this. To be clear, this isn't a rejection to live in the world. We want to engage the world. However, don't let it influence your values. Don't let it numb you of your convictions. Don't let it detour you of your affections. Don't let it hijack your hopes. Make sure your posture is towards God. Make sure your posture is rooted towards God. Don't stand, don't sit, don't get counsel from other voices. Don't let those things hijack you. Instead, the blessed man, the blessed woman does three things. This is the posture that he's getting to here. The posture we will find in David and the posture we will see as hope for us. It's a trifecta. The first, uh, we see, delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it, and meditates on it day and night. So we'll go, um, we'll go backwards. So it says meditate. What does that mean? It means to fill your mind with the truths of God. Meditate. Meditate on it. Anchoring yourself in an anti-God world. We live in an anti-God world. That's what secularism is, an anti-God world. And we're called to rely upon God amidst an anti-God world. Fill your mind with the truth of who God is. He is the potter. He is the creator. There is a God, and we are not him. We do not know what's best. We barely know where our emotional status is going to be in an hour, much less know how to define who we are and where our trajectory is going. We rely upon God. It's the scripture that instructs and informs us of this. It's not just studying. It's meditating. It's allowing these truths to actually get into our soul. There was a 17th century Puritan. His name was Richard Baxter. Uh, And he spoke about meditation. He had suffered chronically. Maybe you feel similar to this. He suffered chronically with kidney stones and headaches and bleeding and toothaches and swollen feet. I mean, his pet's heads were falling off. I mean, just over and over again. He was dealing with all kinds of things, yet he adhered to Psalm 1 to choose to develop a rhythm of meditation. He valued this rhythm of meditation. See, meditation for him and for the history of the church has often been compared to a, a cow choosing cud. And so we're a bunch of farmers in here, so we get this. And so cows, uh, they chew and they chew slowly. They get the nu- nutrients. There's actually more detail. They actually regurgitate and they continue to chew and it's good for them to get all the nutrients out of the things that they are eating. And it's taking those truths for us with meditation on who God is. And it's allowing those truths to be slow and intentional, to get into our hearts. We know that we can know something and not know it, right? Like you can know a lot here and know very little here. The Pharisees knew an awful lot here and knew next to nothing here. So you can know and not know. And so the goal in meditation is to allow our knowledge to get to knowledge, Our knowledge should become intimate knowledge where we can actually know and understand the care and the character and the truth of God. So we meditate. We have a posture of God towards God. We meditate on God. We meditate on him through his scripture. We can meditate on God through experiencing his creation through common graces as well. So we press in the truths of God into our heart and we're hoping those things catch fire. 
That's the point. We want to meditate on God. We want to do it day and night. You know what this means? That our faith can't just be a Sunday thing. Our faith cannot be a Sunday thing. It's a life-altering thing. Uh, It's a posture in the trenches. It's a posture when things are great, and it's a posture when life is hard. It's a posture day and night. It's re-engaging who God is regardless of the season. It's not just in the light when it's good and easy and visible. It's also in the dark, and you can't see your right hand from your left. When life hits you in the face and you were not expecting it, meditate on the truths of God. He becomes our stability. Again, our circumstances, if happiness is defined by an emotional state, then we fall apart when life throws us a curveball and punches in the face and we bleed. But if if our happiness, if our joy is anchored in God, then he becomes our stability regardless of what life throws at us. This meditation day and night, it's in the good times and the bad, reminding ourselves, regardless of our circumstances, of who God is and where God is. Because in the hard times and this dark, we think that God has left us. But the psalmist tells us, as we're going to find out next week, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because he's with me. So we need to remember who God is and where God is, that he's with me right now, even though I might not feel it in this moment. So we meditate. We do it day and night, regardless of the season. And then he says that we delight, that we delight in our reflecting on God's care, in our reflecting of God's grace, in our reflecting of God's stability, in our reflecting of God's mercy, in our reflecting of God's presence, in our reflecting of God's steadfast love, in our reflecting of God's sovereign hands. It allows us to let go of control, and it leads us to delight. When you realize you don't have to hold the reins of your life, you know you do, you begin to let go. And when you begin to let go, and you can trust in somebody else who's holding and caring for your life, delight arises within our hearts because we're not in control. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about tomorrow, Jesus tells us. We can exhale. You know, as a parent of of three boys, I have three legit boys that I love with all of my heart. Countless times, if you have kids, you've experienced this, countless times where a kid awakes from a, a bad dream and comes into your room, right? And then you comfort them. And there's something so beautiful in that moment where there's fear, anxiety, whatever, from a dream, and then all of a sudden, they're at peace. Why are they at peace? Because they're in your presence. And like a child who had a bad dream and rests in their parents' arms, so meditation, regardless of our season, leads us to a deeper rest in the arms of a father who cares for us. We can feel in moments like life is like a nightmare. How do we find peace? We lean into a father who cares for us. Why do kids feel safe after a nightmare in their parents' arms? Because they feel like their parents are with them and care for them and will protect them. How much more for a father in heaven who cares for us, loves us? Friends, this is not just some fairy tale. This is real life. Like there's a God who created the heavens and the earth. There's a God who created humanity. Humanity rebelled. And he wrote into the fabric of the story his life to be the one who could rescue us from sin and the dragon and death and darkness. And he sent his son who died the death that we deserve and he rose again. He swallowed death. 
And he sent his spirit to comfort us, and he will come again to rescue us all, to swallow death forever, to slay the dragon. And we're in the middle of that story. So we can lean into our Father, knowing that he hasn't left us. He is with us. That is the story that we remember as we gather on Sundays. And so the psalmist tells us that the one who meditates day and night and delights is like this tree, this tree planted by streams of water. It's a, it's a tree. It's a planted tree. It's a, a planted tree who receives its nourishment from the water it's planted by. A planted tree who receives its water, water, nourishment from the water it's planted by and is producing fruit. See, the strength of the tree isn't the tree. The strength of the tree is the stream. It's the stream. The tree is, uh, we're like a tree planted by a stream of water. And it's the water that gives the nourishment to the tree to be able to stand and withstand the winds and the pain and the waves and the realities of life. It stands firm, not because it's without water, but it's because of the water that gives it its nourishment and its strength. See, when we posture our heart in humility and trust toward God, we're likened to this tree. This beautiful tree, because of the stream, the tree's leaves never wither. It receives consistent nourishment. It doesn't mean that circumstances go away. It doesn't mean that the pain goes away. It doesn't mean that the trial goes away. But there's stability in meditating day and night and delighting in the one who holds you together that gives you the consistency and the stability that's found only in God. See, the folly of a life not grounded in the stream of God will always lead to the result of the illusions of life, which is the chaff. So many lies that tell us that you don't need God, you can build your own life, but man, you build your own life without God, it will become like chaff. It will disappoint you and you won't know what to do with it. See, when we posture our hearts and our lives to be pleasing to God, to function as if there really is a loving creator who puts you here in this place and time in history. It gives you purpose and it gives you stability that only God can provide. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who postures his or her heart toward God. Doesn't seek to posture their hearts towards approval, but toward God, like a tree planted by streams of water. So this is the wisdom that's offered to us. It affects our life. It makes us teachable in every season of our life. See, when we approach God with this posture, we allow him to teach us. It allows you to teach you about your marriage. When you allow him to be the guiding factor of your life, you're not trying to control it. You allow him to be the primary guiding factor. You allow him, meditating on him day and night, delighting in him. It gives you the endurance to love someone who in that season might not feel lovable or might not feel like they deserve love. It, it gives you the endurance. It gives you the fuel to love that person. It gives us the strength in parenting in seasons where parenting is extra difficult to lean in, meditate in the good seasons and the bad, day and night, delighting in. It gives us the endurance to love a child that might feel difficult to love. And in your work environment, it allows you, when we meditate day and night, delighting and trusting in the God who controls all things, it allows us to not try to control our career path. It allows us to trust God with our future. 
It does the same with relationships, same with generosity. It does the same in all of our lives when we allow him to actually lead our lives and we give up our autonomy and trust in him. It shapes how we live. See, David was far from an ideal man, but he maintained a a heart posture that reset upon God. And when he wavered, and he does, and we're going to find that out, when he wavered, he would reset upon the character of God. Of God. So during the Psalms, we're going to learn a lot of things. We're going to learn about prayer. We're going to learn about difficult circumstances. We're going to learn about unmet expectations, the need for the presence of God. We're going to learn about surrender and repentance, approaching God honestly, resetting on the kindness of God. But this morning, we are invited to consider our posture. How do we approach God? How do you approach God? What is your heart posture toward God? I know this, that in Christ, we Uh, In Christ, do we throw ourselves at his mercy? Or in our mistakes and our failures, do we feel like God's expecting us to get our life right first before we approach him? That's a posture. If you think he's just a taskmaster, you're going to try to figure your life out, get it in order. When you make a mistake, figure it out, and then give him that. But he doesn't offer us that. He offered us Jesus so that we wouldn't have to do that. So we could come with him and all of our warts and all of our brokenness, just like David, and actually approach him and his loving kindness. Do we come to God vulnerably or defensively? Some of us could do a mixture of both, but the invitation is to posture our hearts towards God, knowing that he calls us to boldly approach him. So friends, the invitation for us is to approach God with a posture of humility, trusting in his character, being like a tree planted by streams of living water. I want that for my life. I know, I know we do. Let's lean into that as we go through this series and even this morning as we reflect upon how we approach him. Let's reset on the fact that he's kind and caring and good and he can be trusted. Amen? Let's pray. Father, our confession is that we want to be like a tree planted by streams of water. And our hope is that you have provided streams of water to us. I thank you, Jesus, that you shouted in John that we can drink from the water. You've provided water to us. God, we give you thanks for the way that you've offered us the living water that is your spirit. And I ask that you would remind us of your spirit who is with us here and now. You said, anyone who is thirsty, let them come to me and drink and streams of water will flow from their innermost being. So this morning, we agree with that song that we sang. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in our lives. You're welcome to move among us. You're welcome to fill us afresh. Would you meet us, God? We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Lord, meet this body. Those here, those online, Lord, meet us. Stir our affection for you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.